Oh, okay. Uh, so, you know, when we started this series uh, that we've called Streaks, I began by asking for your help by sharing uh, a streak that you're working on and actually why you are doing it. So thank you for all the responses. Can't use all of them, uh, but I wanted to share a few more of those that I received. Uh, someone said, I want to be a Barnabas, an encourager, someone who sees others who need built up or deserve to be built up or who have potential to be built up and then take time each day to sincerely and specifically tell them that they are appreciated and why they're appreciated. And by the way, if you've ever had someone do that for you, you know exactly why that's a, that's a big deal. And so that's a great streak. Uh, and I had several that were like this, uh, uh, praying with my spouse every day so we grow in our faith and connection with God together. And I love this next part, keeping our hearts softened toward each other and encouraged by each other, which by the way, uh, that plays into our real series that we'll start next week, and we're going to be talking about friendship and dating and marriage. Uh, on February 26th, when we do marriage, we're going to have a panel up here, and part of what we want to do is answer any questions that you have uh, that you would ask of the panel about what does the Bible say about this, uh, maybe this thing going on in your life, or this thing that a friend is going through. And so I hope you'll take a moment to ask us those questions. Uh, and listen, uh, there's one more streak. I know it's been well over a year, but I wondered how many of our teachers were trying to develop this streak. We don't talk about Bruno, no, no, no. Yeah, you know, someone shared that with me, and I thought, man, I love inflicting pain on people. So uh, I, I wanted to share that with you. Hey, thanks for being with us. My name is Mike. If this is your first time with us, I'm the lead pastor here at MCC. And uh, thanks for joining us here in the room. Thanks for joining us online. And a shout out to Wendy and Greg who join us online. It's good to have you all with us uh, today. So we're in this series that we've called Streaks. And uh, it's all about habits or disciplines that as disciples of Jesus, we need to develop uh, that will have their greatest impact on our lives if we do them, not just sporadically and haphazardly, but if we do them consistently and intentionally and often. Really, what we're shooting for with a lot of them is daily. Uh, and if not daily, maybe weekly or monthly or some sort of regular rhythm with them. That's why we've called it streaks. And to be clear, if you've not uh, heard this before, uh, at MCC, when we say disciple, we mean something very specific. And, and so I've been sharing that with you every week. So today I'm going to ask you to share that with me. If you would, it's going to be on the screen. But my hope is that you'll just remember this. This is just something that will fall out of your head whenever you hear the word disciple, that you will think specifically about this. Because at MCC, when we talk about a disciple, what we mean is, are you ready? A disciple is someone who... That is exactly right. And so this, thank you, by the way, for doing that. This series is aimed specifically, has been aimed at those things that, that are used by Jesus to change us, right? Uh, there's something that we do that he has given us, and then he uses that to change our lives. So we've talked about developing streaks with reading and reflecting on scripture, doing that on a daily basis, at least four times a week. Uh, praying daily for guidance, that God will guide you through that day, specifically with what's going on, and, uh, and also for confession, so that we remember. By the way, it's important that we remember. We are sinners in need of forgiveness, and so we go back to God for that. And we've talked about serving. We've talked about generosity. Today, and this may sound odd to talk about as a discipline or a habit, but we're talking about community or relationships. 
And we're going to be reminded of this through a story that may be familiar to some of us who are familiar with the Gospels, but if you've never heard this story before, it's like one of the weirdest stories you'll ever hear. So it's in the Gospel of Mark, if you have your Bible with you. Chuck mentioned the YouVersion Bible app a little bit ago. Uh, we've got our notes there. So if you don't have the YouVersion Bible app, like Chuck, I highly recommend that you get it on your phone. So, but Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, just to kind of catch everybody up, this verse, when they say they, we're talking about Jesus and the twelve. And if your Bible is open and you look back into Mark 4, the chapter before, what you see is that Jesus had taught large crowds, uh, so large that he had to get into a boat to talk to them on the shore. Uh, And then that evening when Jesus is done teaching, they set off across the lake, but the storm seems to come out of nowhere and and tries to, it's like it's going to sink the boat. Uh, And Jesus, this is when Jesus calms the storm. So all that has just happened, and now they're on the other side of the lake. And verse 2 tells us that when they land there, there is this man who has an evil spirit uh, living inside of him who came from the tombs to meet him. And then he's described, verse 3 says that he lived in a cemetery. And by the way, don't picture a cemetery like what we see in the United States today. Uh, It's not like he went and, you know, laid down at night in a hole in the ground. Uh, Rather, it was more like a cave. Uh, but it was a tomb, and his roommates and all of his neighbors were, um, you know, dead. And so Luke's account of this story tells us that he had lived in the tombs and not worn clothing for a long time. And, and I wonder, he may have had broken chains uh, or shackles still hanging from his wrists and, and his feet from where people had tried to chain him up, tried to tie him up. Uh, uh, maybe he probably, my guess is he had at least cuts and bruises and scrapes all over his body. Verse 4 says, but no one was strong enough to subdue him. Now, the message version says it a little more true to the meaning. It says no one was strong enough to tame him. The, the Greek word means like to tame a wild animal. That's really how they saw this guy. So when he sees Jesus, when this guy sees Jesus, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him and said, What do you want to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to me that you won't torture me. And in verse 9, Jesus says, what's your name? And his response, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Just look at that verse for a moment. Look at how he responds to Jesus, because there's a couple of things that if you're not paying attention, it's more difficult to catch in the English than it was in the original language. Because when this guy speaks throughout this text, the verbs alternate from singular, as if one person is talking, to plural, as if many voices are talking. And it suggests that at sometimes this guy is speaking, and at other times the demons that live inside of him are actually talking. And they beg, these voices, they beg Jesus to send them into a herd of pigs that's feeding on a nearby hill, verse 13 says. And so we're kind of, I'm giving you a high gloss of this story because we're going to come back to it. But in verse 13, he gives them permission and the evil spirits come out of the pig or come out of the man, went into the pigs and the herd about 2,000 in number rushed down the steep bank into the lake and committed suicide. (laughs) 
Hey, that's not funny. Uh, so, uh, listen. <laughs> because the demons called him legion. By the way, not this guy. That's not this guy's gift. His mom didn't name him legion. But because the, the demons called him that, scholars speculate that as many as 6,000 demons lived inside of him. Now, they speculate that because a Roman uh, legion consisted of 6,000 foot soldiers. But what I want you to notice is, and we've already seen this, there were enough demons in him that 2,000 pigs went insane. And there's a lot to this story. There's a lot to this story, but I want to get you to the end. The people who were hurting the pigs went back into town, and they told on Jesus. Like, they're in third grade. They went and they told on Jesus, and the people came out, and they saw no pigs, and then they saw you know, the new and improved legion sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And look at their response. They're afraid. <laughs> they see this man whose life has, has been torn apart and now put back together again, and they're afraid. And so they ask Jesus to leave. And in verses 18 to 20, as Jesus is getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him, but Jesus didn't let him go. Verse 19, Jesus tells the man to go back home. And tell everything that God has done for him and how God has shown him mercy. And in verse 20, it says that he did, and the people were amazed. And there's a ton there. There's a ton. There's a ton in this story. But I want to make sure you see verse 18. As Jesus is getting into the boat, what is this guy's response? Because I want to make sure. Listen, when you read this, he's not asking. This isn't a polite, he's not grammatically correct. He didn't say, listen, if you don't, you know, have anything else going uh, on the rest of the day, or do you think it would be okay? Or, hey, I think there's a spot there on your boat. Do you mind if I squeeze in? I don't think it was anything like that. I'm not even sure he was polite about it. It says he begged. And I don't know if you've ever begged for anything in your life. But I looked up the word beg in a thesaurus and got words like beseech and implore and plead and nag and urge and crave. What I want you to catch is this is an act of desperation. The question becomes, what is this guy desperate for? What's going on here that he's so desperate? Now, we know that he was filled with demons. And, uh, and so the question becomes, how was Satan trying to destroy him? And the reason I ask that is because Peter, at the end of the New Testament, tells the early church that our enemy, Satan, is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, to tear apart, to shred, to destroy. John, or Jesus uh, tells us, he reminds us that Satan, because he talks about the enemy, he says the enemy, and he's talking about Satan, has come to steal and kill and destroy. And I just want to say, the enemy did that then, and he still does it today. And so the question becomes, how did he seek to destroy this man? Because we know that the demons were capable of murder. They just killed 2,000 pigs, but they didn't kill him. How are they trying to destroy him? I want to make sure you catch this. They isolated him. He lived in the tombs. He stayed away from people, and people stayed away from him. And Satan's still doing that. Today, he's still destroying people through isolation. And so I don't know if maybe you've ever had these thoughts about, man, just, just stay in bed today. You don't, you don't need to be around folks. We'll just, as a matter of fact, why don't you just stay in your room? Well, let's, let's turn out the light. We'll just keep it dark in here today. We, you know, you know, we'll just, just kind of hang out here. You don't need to go near your family. 
Don't go to that party. Listen, come on, it's going to get late. You're going to be tired. You don't need to go be around people. And by all means, don't go to church. <laughs> don't be around those people. They're just going to judge you. And, and for sure, don't talk to God because he doesn't want to listen to you anyway. Why would someone like him want to listen to someone like you? It's verse 7. What do you want, to, what do you want with me, Jesus? And the meaning of those words more accurately are what do we have in common? Jesus, what, what do we have in common? You know, people who ask that, what would God want with me? So Satan tries to distance us from others, and he tries to distance us from God. And his desire is to get you to believe that nobody wants to be around you, so you go it alone. It's verse 5, night and day among the tombs, he would cry out. And he would cut himself with stones. And I just want to say, maybe for you, maybe for someone that you love, listen, when, when you're hurt and you feel the most unlovable, the person you end up hurting most could be yourself. And maybe you have a friend like that. But I want to make sure you get this. It's in the notes. But disciples of Jesus, remember we talked about what a disciple is, disciples, not just people who go to church, but disciples, people who are actually following and being changed by Jesus and committed to his mission. We know that discipleship is not a solo journey, that we're supposed to live this in community. We're supposed to be. We're supposed to develop a community. We are born to belong. We were created by God in his image for community. And whether we like to admit it or not, we spend our whole lives trying to fit in, get in, and stay in, and it really kind of doesn't even matter what in is. We just want it. We want in. We want to belong somewhere because we were created in God's image, and God is a relational God. And we only begin to experience life fully when we move toward healthy relationships and healthy community. Your soul, your soul will never be satisfied with anything else. Paul would tell the early church, so in Christ we though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And then when he writes to the church in Corinth, tucked in this discussion about what the church is supposed to be like, he's kind of describing it as sort of like the human body. And he says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And so Paul points out that when disciples of Jesus build community with other disciples. So let me just say this very clearly. So like not in a room like this. It's got to be smaller than this. Okay? This is good. We need this, but we need to also be smaller than this. He says when we build community, real community, relationships with other disciples, it's as if our, our souls grow together and we develop uh, uh, spiritual nerve endings. And if something happens to you, I can't help but be affected by it. We are connected soul to soul. It's like if you were to, have you ever stubbed your toe in the dark? I mean, the rest of your body has nothing to do with it. But all of a sudden, man, you know you're one unit because your other leg starts hopping around and your hands start grabbing and your mouth starts saying things that you're hoping nobody else hears, right? In the same way, a church member uh, a church member feels of what they feel touches everyone else in the community, in a healthy, functioning community of disciples of Jesus. People are deeply connected to one another. And, and sometimes when, when what happens is good or bad, right? The instinctive response is to rally. We rally around each other. There's a poem. Ken Medema wrote it. 
It says, and it's in the notes, if this is not a place where tears are understood, well, where do I go to cry? If this is not a place where my spirit can take wings, where do I go to fly? If this is not a place where questions can be asked, where do I go to seek? And if this is not a place where my feelings can be heard, where do I go to speak? If this is not a place where you accept me just as I am, then where do I go to be free? And if this is not a place where I can cry and learn and grow, where can I go to just be me? And so, I, listen, I don't know what you think the church is. This isn't like a show. This isn't like we all just come and dress and act like we got it all together. This is a place for the people who know they don't have it all together. And we come together to encourage each other. Eldon Trueblood said this, it's in the notes. The early Christians were not people of standing, but they had a secret power among them, and the secret power resulted from the way in which they were members of one another. That's our secret power here. Paul would write to the church in Rome, be devoted to one another like a loving family, excel in showing respect for each other. You know, Andrew Davidson wrote a book several years ago. It was about, it included a story about a trip that he took to Africa and a visit that he got to have with Dr. Albert Schweitzer, who was 85 years old at the time. And Davidson uh, said, imagine the impact that a visit with someone like Schweitzer would be able to, would have on you if you're able to actually sit down with them and talk to them and, and, and just pick the brain of this humanitarian musician, theologian, physician. He wrote about this one event that stood out in particular. He said it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. The sun was beating down on us mercilessly as we're hiking up this hill, and, and suddenly Schweitzer left us, and he walked across the hill to the place where this African woman was struggling with a large bundle of wood for cook fires, and he said, I watched with both admiration, but also great concern, as this 85-year-old man took this armload of wood from this woman and carried it up the hill for her. The group, he said, humbly watched in amazement. Dr. Why would you do something like that? Implying, of course, that with that heat and at his age, he should be careful. And Schweitzer looked at the group and motioned toward the woman and said, nobody should ever have to carry a burden like that alone. Isn't that how the church is called to be devoted to one another? It wasn't just like one or two churches Paul would say this to remind them of. Like every time he talked to a church, he reminded them. So the church in Galatia, when we have the opportunity to help someone, we should do it. But we should give special attention to those who are in the family of believers. That's why we work here at MCC uh, to get you into a group, maybe a one-on-one type thing, or, or maybe a, uh, three or four or five people who are intentionally and strategically meeting to walk together as disciples. And while this includes learning what God is telling us through His Word, listen, that's really important, but it's more than that. It's not merely a Bible study. It's about living life together and looking for accountability and encouragement that comes with others that you know and who care about you and know that you will disciple others. So what you're experiencing in that group, you're going to take, and you're going to help somebody else experience that as well. But it's not just about helping those who've already made their commitment to Him, although that's part of it. We are meant to help each other on this journey. It's about helping those who don't know Him yet. And by Him, I mean Jesus. And it's in this story. It's at the very end. If we don't pay attention, we might miss it. It's verse 19. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so I put this in your notes, although 
honestly, it should be obvious to all of us, and it should go without saying, which means I'll probably say it, but disciples share their faith. Listen, that, that should be in our DNA. It should, it's just who we are. We share our faith. Can you imagine how hard it must have been to go back among those who had witnessed his insanity? How embarrassing to have been that crazy and then try to step back into the mainstream of society. Can you imagine the whispers? Can you imagine the finger pointing? Can you imagine the mothers grabbing their kids and pulling them close as he passed by? Because you never know when he might snap again. If he could just get in the boat with Jesus, if he could just leave his past in the past, if he could just leave it back there, that would be the answer to all of his pain and all of his disgrace, which is at least what he thought. And Jesus said, no, don't come with us. He said the best thing the ex-demoniac could do would be go back to his people, his family, his friends, and tell them what God had done for him. Listen, who is better equipped than this guy to convince people of God's power to change lives? And that's what he did. Verse 20 says, so the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. One of the best ways, one of the best ways to help people understand what Jesus can do for their life is to tell them what he's done in your life. One of the best ways to help people understand what God can do in their life is to tell them what he's done in yours. And Mark says, All the people were amazed. You know, it strikes me that it would be one of our enemy's greatest strategies to get people to think they've already lost the war. There's no hope for me. I mean, don't you suppose that's where this, I mean, think about where this guy, who in the world, nobody in their right mind tries to even get close to him unless they're going to tie him up, try to chain him down. And maybe your friends, maybe you have friends who think this. Or maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're in the room, maybe you're online with us, and you're thinking the same thing. I mean, what hope? Seriously, what hope do you have? Do you know why I think Jesus allowed the spirits to go into the pigs, even knowing that they would destroy them? I think it was to show this man and the people in that community and the people in this community that as powerful as demons are, and please don't underestimate them, but don't overestimate them either. As powerful as they are, Jesus destroys them. They've got nothing on him. Don't you know someone who needs to know that? Not just that he'll give you your life back, not just that he'll give them their life back, he'll actually give them back their life with his life in it. Don't you know, listen, I guarantee that you're going to run into someone this week who needs to hear that, that Jesus hasn't given up on them, and neither have you, and the best evidence for Jesus of how much Jesus can change a life is a life that's been changed by Him. That's us. It's us. I was at a conference, and I heard the speaker tell about regularly inviting an agnostic attorney friend of his to church. He said the guy was really crusty and far from God, but the preacher had invested a lot of time in the relationship and had prayed a lot uh, that this investment would pay off. And one Sunday, he said, one Sunday, as the service was starting, I saw this guy walk in. He walked 
into the room, but because it was full. The, the, the guy helping people get seated brought him up front and sat him next to a mentally handicapped member of the church. And at invitation time, the preacher noticed the two of them were talking. Uh, and and, and they were talking, and then all of a sudden, the attorney just stood up and left, and he wasn't happy. Uh, and after he been, so this speaker said, after all this time, trying so hard to get him to church, he was frustrated that something had so obviously gone wrong during the service. But the next Sunday, the attorney is back. And at the invitation time, he came forward and accepted Jesus. And afterward, the, the pastor, the speaker, asked him about what motivated his decision. And the attorney said, listen, I'm really sorry to tell you, but it had nothing to do with what you said. It was the man I sat next to last week. At the end of the service, he leaned over and he asked me if I wanted to go to heaven when I died. He said, I was so offended by that question, I said, no. And he looked at me and said, well, then go to hell. Uh, <laughs> and he said, he said, it's bothered me so much all week. I came forward. Listen, as Christians, we're called to impact people who are far from God. Not sure I recommend this guy's approach, but, but whatever works. So when Jesus returns to the area, because he comes back to this area in chapters 7 and 8, and you remember why he's leaving the area, right? He's just been disinvited by the community to stay. He's, he's kicked out. He's asked to leave. But the second time, he's not. As a matter of fact, when he comes back the second time in, in chapter 7 and 8, he's received very warmly, and he heals many people. And that's when the feeding of the 4,000 occurs. Why? What do you think happened? Why would the citizens of the Decapolis give Jesus a different reception? Honestly, the Bible doesn't really say. But my guess, if I had to guess was that this guy who used to be a lunatic, who had no decrees and no credentials whatsoever, but did have an encounter with Jesus, and did have his life turned completely around, he couldn't shut up about it, is my guess. Commentaries will tell you that after the time of Jesus, just after the New Testament was written, there were strong thriving, healthy communities of disciples in all of these 10 cities. By the way, that's what Decapolis means, the 10 cities. So in all of these 10 cities, there's these strong, thriving communities of disciples. Isn't that coincidental? People already know what kind of life you're living. They're watching you. And you need to understand this. If you've made a commitment to Jesus, I don't care who you are. They're watching you. You are being watched. My neighbors are watching me. I don't tell anyone that I'm a pastor. I don't know how they know. I don't know if it's the neon cross that's on our roof that we light up every night. I don't know if it's the lighted halo I wear around the neighborhood from time to time. Could be. I don't know. But your neighbors know where you are this morning. And I've said this before. That if you think, if you're here this morning, you think you come to church on Sunday mornings and people don't know where you are you are fooling yourself. They know where you are. They just don't care unless there's something different about the way you live your life in response to the gospel of Jesus in your life. They want to know if this is real or not because they're not going to waste their time if it's not. But they're going to watch you to see if you're really living out your faith. And then if you do, 
There will come a point, something's going to happen, and they're going to want to know what makes you tick. There's a prayer in your notes that says this, and I like this prayer. Lord, don't let me be just a sign but a fork in the road that when men come to me, they have to go one way or the other. God, help me to be that person that on the path of their life, when they get to me, they can't just keep going. They're going to have to go one way or the other because of how they have experienced you living through me. The way you have changed my life has to have some impact on them. And they will either just totally ignore you and make an intentional decision to do it, or they're going to have to start thinking about the possibility that you might be real. And you actually do make a difference in people's lives. Listen, if you've never given your life to Him, we want to help you with that. We would, it is an honor, it is a privilege to help people make decisions about who Jesus is going to be in their life. And, and if you want to talk about that, I'll be down front after the service this morning. We can set up a time to talk this week. If you've already made that decision, your task is to strengthen other followers around you. Not, not, not everybody. Grab a group. Grab your people. Encourage each other. Challenge each other. Hold each other accountable for what you say you believe. That's how we're meant to journey. And then we're sent out. We are sent out. It's not, our faith isn't about this. Our faith is about that. We gather so we can go. And Jesus can use us to change the world. So we very naturally come to a time of communion that reminds us of where our story inter intersected with God's to become our brand new story. And I hope that every time we take the emblems that remind us of Jesus' body and blood given for our sins, that you are encouraged and reminded that God will use your story to help someone else ask him to rewrite theirs just like he rewrote yours just like he rewrote mine he will use us if we will allow him to help someone else come to know him and so we're going to remember I'm going to pray and then we're going to remember together as we walk through this so let's pray Father, thank you for uh, being able to come together like this and be reminded that you love us so much <laughs> and that there's nothing, there's nothing. We say that there's nothing stronger than God. There's nothing you can't do. And this demoniac reminds us of that. But more than that, we don't have to look 2,000 years ago to some guy whose life is all messed up. They got turned around because of you, Jesus. We can look at ourselves. We have family members. We have friends. And we've seen you turn lives around completely. Lives that were written off by so many other people. And you never did. You never wrote them off. People who just stopped hanging around them because, man, they were so weird or they were so strung out or so addicted or so annoying or so whatever. And you never did. You never stopped. You loved them. You stood by their side. Even when they tried to get away from you, you stayed with them.
thank you. And as we remember now, Jesus, the sacrifice you made on the cross on behalf of our sins, may we draw close to you and be reminded of the cost, the penalty for what we have, the decisions we made. And you paid that price for us. And may we be drawn, may we be reminded that this isn't a solo journey. We're not doing this alone. We do it with our friends who help us follow you. And then we reach out because there are others who haven't made that commitment. May this remind us this morning. And we pray this, Jesus, in your powerful name. Amen. And so we take the, the wafer that reminds us of Jesus' body that was given for us on the cross. And as we take this, we remember him and the price for our sins and how our story has been rewritten by Jesus. And the juice that reminds us of his blood that was spilled for us on the cross that calls to us, reminds us of his love for us so that his love can flow through us into the lives of others who are already followers and those who are not so that they can come to him as well so we remember together. And so Father, in this moment, we just want to, we want to remember who you are in our lives we want to come clean with you this morning about who we've been. Father, we're grateful that you walk with us, but we know we need others to walk with us as well. Sometimes to show us the way, sometimes so we can show them the way, to encourage, be accountable to love unconditionally. And we have friends who don't know you that what we're doing right now would make zero sense to them because they have no idea of your story or they may have a bad idea. They've been given bad information. God, help us to live our lives in such a way that it helps draw them to you. Make us a fork in the road. Help our lives help others make decisions. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name.